Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week I get to interview two of my favourite researchers who study research impact, Beck Colvin and Chris Svitanovich, both based at Australia National University now. Uh, I had the privilege of talking to them uh, last year. I was in Australia on a research workshop all about research impact with a network of researchers studying this across Australia and New Zealand and nabbed them for an interview. And I thought, uh, what better time to, uh, to put that interview out than now, given that I'm going back to Australia uh, to meet up with them uh, and other colleagues and collaborators and do a bit of research impact training this summer. The title of this week's podcast is Too Much of a Good Thing? Can Too Much Trust and Privilege Be Bad for Impact? Now, this is, of course, counterintuitive. Uh, I'm always talking about trust. Surely, if we want to take a relational approach to impact, we need to be building trust and gaining trust, and you can never have too much of that, surely. Well, actually, based on some of the research that these researchers have done, uh, you can see that actually there very much is such a thing as too much trust, and it can, in fact, be counterproductive. And what about privilege? Well, surely I need to gain influence um, and whatever privileges I have, surely I should use them. And if I use them in the public good to try and influence policy based on the latest evidence, to try and get that evidence into practice, into business, uh, then if that is for social good, then surely that's a good thing. Uh, Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, These are two researchers at the top of their game doing fascinating research. I do encourage you to go and uh, look at the show notes, uh, delve into their publications. Um, But I'm going to hand over right now to the interview and let you hear from them. So I have the privilege of being at the Australian National University today in Canberra. Um, I'm here on a visit. Uh, We have been doing a workshop all about knowledge exchange, co-production and impact. And I thought that I would handpick from our esteemed list of guests, two of my favourite people, uh, who I've worked with for a number of years in different guises. And uh, that, that amazing thing when you actually get to meet someone for the first time face to face. And uh, and here we are all uh, in a studio now together uh, after having worked for the last two days together on lots of cool stuff. Uh, so, uh, so we have Chris uh, and we have Beck. And uh, I thought, rather than me trying to massacre your CV, why don't you tell me uh, how cool you are, what kind of stuff you do. Uh, So maybe start with your job title, but then explain the kind of stuff that you do. Um, And I want to then just explore some of the things that that I found most interesting in terms of the the key things that, that we can learn from studying knowledge exchange processes in terms of really what seems to work in practice. Um, And uh, some contradictory, perhaps, or just unexpected things um, uh, around things that we might think are good, but that we sometimes have a bit too much of. So in particular, trust. Of course, we need trust. We need lots of trust. Surely that's a core thing, but actually, can you have too much of that? Uh, And privilege. Uh, I mean, wow, we have such a privilege. The the creative freedom that we have, uh, the access we have to policymakers, to other decision makers uh, as academics, uh, but actually critically reflecting on that privilege um, and some of the uh, negative consequences of of not being critical about that. Uh, This is is the stuff I think we're going to try and explore. So, uh, Beck. 
tell us a little bit about who you are. Oh, thanks, Mark. And it's really kind of you to ask me to be part of this discussion. So as you know, I've read your work for years and you've been very influential. So I feel like I have to get that on the record. Yeah. But and in fact, you were one of the original <laughs> reviewers for the first edition of the Research Impact Handbook. And there's uh, a little quote from really you good. on the back of it <laughs> as well, because, yeah, and that was great. I mean, when you self-publish in particular, you rely on actual real people like you who might use a book like this to actually tell me what you genuinely think and what on earth needs to change. And and yeah, so thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. And actually, um, maybe this is too much information. You can cut this out if you don't like it. But um, <laughs> I was in hospital at the time and it was something that was really enjoyable to have as kind of an um, escape to the normal world outside of the bed at the time. So, there you go. Yeah. So I often really recommend my books to people if you're struggling to get to sleep rather than taking sleep <laughs> tablets, you can read my books. But uh, if you're in hospital as well, uh, it's a very hard place to get to sleep. And, uh, and I'm sure, it, yeah. Uh, but well, on, it certainly did not have that effect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's great to read. Thank you. Really. So you're a knowledge exchange specialist, I think. Is that your title? Uh, that is my title. And especially in such company, I feel like a bit of a fraud. So... Um, I work with the Climate Change Institute here at the Australian National University, and I'm very lucky to be in a small team with very supportive people. I consider, um, in many ways, Chris to be part of my team. He's worked with Professor Mark Howden, who's the director of my institute for some time. Um, and I've been lucky that I've had a lot of this support to find my own way doing this practice and this, um, this work in this space. It can be so individual, I think, that's my reading anyway. It comes down to who you are as a person and how you develop relationships and how you engage with ideas and how you help or support other people to engage with ideas. And so in my role with the Climate Change Institute, um, I kind of have a few different things that I'm meant to be doing and I'm not sure to what extent I do them effectively or otherwise. But um, I try to help with the university bringing people together from different schools and disciplines because, as we know, interdisciplinarity is critical if we're solving some wicked problems like climate change. Uh, and so I spend a lot of time drinking coffee with interesting and nice people, getting to know them, and that's a real pleasure and a privilege. Um, and also trying to think about how we can make the research more useful for people outside of the university. So I've um, been lucky to make friends with people in government and non-governmental organisations and some of the local industries, like some really amazing, smart people who are working on tough policy issues or who are doing really innovative stuff as startup businesses. Uh, and again, I have coffee with them and get to know them. And that's really nice. And think about who else can they talk to and what might be relevant and how can I help them? And then the other side of that is um, doing more research around how do we understand this interesting point of um, overlap or connection or the interface or whatever you want to call it between how we generate knowledge and how we enact change. Um, and in that regard, I'm very much guided by Chris's work, of course, and have had the pleasure of collaborating with him. So am I allowed to make segues or is that up to you as the host? Can I segue to Chris <laughs> introducing <laughs> himself? Why don't you? I, but I do want to follow up on something that you said there. Actually. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. No, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, because... Um, uh, 
the privilege that y you have of, of meeting all these people, man. Wow, that is one of the things that I love most about engaging with the outside world. You get to meet these crazy people with crazy ideas yeah, that yeah. actually inspire you and make you think differently. And, and actually, for many of us, we go into research because we want to challenge ourselves. We want to challenge our ways of thinking. And, and actually, yeah, what a great way to do that. But at the beginning of what you said there, uh, you talked about how, uh, the, the way in which the, the people around you in the Climate Change Institutes just bring this this personality and this humanity to what they do. And that's something I see in what you do. And I think what's unique about that working in that kind of space is that I think very often there is this attitude that, well, I'm a scientist and I have to be objective. And so I'm going to kind of split off the me and my personal opinions and my personality and then the science. And you mm. keep this objective distance from it. Uh, and as a result, you're not able to actually open that channel of empathy with the people you're talking to. You're not really a person. You are just a data spouting kind of machine. <laughs> and, and okay, the, there's a role for that. Um, yeah. but, but I think when, when you really need to communicate stuff that is really difficult in a challenged, controversial space, the humanity that you bring to this is, is hugely important. And, and I think what makes you successful as a knowledge exchange specialist would you agree with that? I think that the humility, like you're talking about empathy, I'm completely convinced that that's critical. I'm I'm not sure that I can ref accept the very kind things you've said ab about me necessarily, but I agree that they're Im important and mm. critical to doing this sort of work. Yeah, well, so, uh, so you're clearly demonstrating a lots of humility as well. <laughs> there you go. So you, you're just uh, backing it all up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so Chris, um, so Chris, tell tell a bit more. Um, in fact, you know what? Um, I need you to both tell me what your surnames are, um, so that uh, and your Twitter handles, so that people can actually find you. Um, Beck Colvin, um, is it just at Beck Colvin? If I'm right, I think there's an underscore in between Beck and Colvin. There we go. Okay, Maybe. so we can we can Something find you. Like that. Yeah. And um, I'm going to try because uh, someone tried to introduce you yesterday, Chris, and, um, and tried and failed and then just tried to skip over the fact that you had a second name. Um, so, uh, Chris Svitanovich. Close enough. <sighs> yeah, that's better than my wife says it. So, it? Okay, yeah, that's, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> um, so, go on, then. give me your version of it and, and tell us how to find you on, on social media. Uh, you'd need to know how to spell my last name. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a good point, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so spell it and pronounce it for us. <laughs> oh, all right. In a second, though, because I just want to say again, yeah. like Beck, thank you for having me. Like, it's cool. obviously a privilege to have you here. And I actually, I actually skipped out on a workshop I was in in Indonesia early, mainly because Mark was coming here. So to meet you and Beck yeah. again and others, it's awesome. These feelings are always mutual. But I love that. <laughs> I just want to make the point because Beck is way too humble. I work very closely with Beck for so long, and she's so good at what she does, and she's so humble. Beck is covering her face yeah. at this moment, trying to cringe into the corner. <laughs> and she inspires the rest of us in this community as much as it's reciprocal. So, Beck, you're awesome. Thanks, yeah. Chris. You're so, awesomer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, my name's Chris Vitanovich. Um, Brilliant. Yep, I've just started in a new job at CSIRO in Tasmania in Australia. Um, I guess I see myself as an early career researcher interested in the space between science and action. Um, and I guess what I was actually an ecologist originally and what brought me here was almost 10 years working in government um, and managing science programs for the Australian government around their marine estate. Um, and I got really interested in the way the government used and approached scientific knowledge 
Um, and I became really interested in how to improve the way that science is integrated into decision-making processes and how science is integrated with other forms of knowledge like experiential knowledge and traditional knowledge. Um, and that led me down this dark rabbit hole of knowledge exchange and Mark's work and Jan Fazy's work and a lot of the early work in this space inspired me or it taught me that it's a discipline I could turn it into a job and I did a PhD, I dropped out of my ecology PhD, picked up a PhD in social science um, and started one all over again and ended up here. So now a lot of my work is around working with stakeholders to evaluate their knowledge exchange processes to try to help them identify new ways of doing it more effectively in the future. Brilliant. So I'm a massive fan of your work. Um, and not only do I get to read your work, but you've invited me to co-author a bunch of papers with you as well, which is just brilliant. Um, uh, and one of the papers that I think surprised me most was uh, a paper you wrote recently uh, about trust with Beck and others. Um, uh, and, uh, and your thesis here is that actually you can have too much of a good thing. Tell us more. Yes, yeah, so you can have too much of a good thing sometimes. So the paper's born out of a good thing. So it's with co-authors Justine Lacey and Mark Howden and Beck and myself and I just think we just have a lot of fun when we get together and we quite often sit around having coffee and just discussing things that interest us. And this paper was born here on campus at ANU over a coffee when we had no intention of writing a paper together. And we were sitting there reflecting our experiences of trust and how we operate as individuals at that interface. Um, and all of us had really good descriptions of when we've had situations where we've had too much trust or trust has led to a perverse outcomes, whether we've been involved in them or seen them. And so some examples for me was when I was in government, I saw some decision makers trust some groups of scientists so much that they'd use their information at the expense of other, other information. So it wasn't a, was a well-balanced decision in my view. Um, and so we're sort of sitting there discussing and thought, well, we should write a paper about this. Um, and the paper was born. So in a nutshell, the paper basically argues that trust is critical. We all know that trust underpins an effective relationship between individuals and the way they exchange knowledge. What we essentially argue is that there's some situations where you can have too much trust and that there's a position of optimal trust. So when you have too much trust, you might blindly trust people and take whatever they say for granted, um, which can, as I said before, can compromise decision-making um, processes. I guess one of the things we look at is how we can try to mitigate against too much trust and keep it in the space of optimal trust. And we talk about things like transparency and honesty. And in in their simplest forms, they're very easy concepts. And I think most scientists consider themselves to be honest. But one of the points that we explore in the paper that is important to me is that we live in a culture where we're forced to publish or perish or chase next grant. So while we might be inherently honest, we're sometimes put in positions where we might feel like we do need to not tell the entire truth to get our own way or to keep ourselves employed or get that next funding grant. So I think inherently in our career, there are these challenges that um, compromise our ability to be honest and can lead to distrusting situations. And I think the paper is really about how we navigate some of these situations of maintaining optimal trust and navigating a career in science while keeping optimal trust levels. Mm. What do you reckon, Beck? I think that's a great summary. I think it's really challenging because we get these mantras that we follow and they're really useful for helping us to deal with complicated situations, but sometimes they become unhelpful. And uh, that idea of optimal trust, I think we also encountered some work around this idea of critical trust where you say, I do trust you, but I will continue to question you. So like that idea of a critical mm -hmm. friend. I think that's very valuable and it's really interesting. And I know um, some of the mates I've got in public service said they loved the 
I don't think they read the whole page. They read the thing we wrote about it on the conversation, which was a much shorter and snippier version. But they found it really refreshing and interesting that these sorts of things were being discussed because we do so often assume a really simplistic model of how knowledge flows between people and how people relate to each other uh, and recognising the complexities and the challenges and strategies are really important. So, yeah, I'm really proud of being part of that work and it was great to work with Chris and Justine and Mark on it. Yeah, yeah I think it's promoted a lot of discussion and, um, yeah, it, it surprises me. I think we're, we're often not that critical with ourselves and don't realise when we're not being fully trustworthy. And it's not because we're doing it on purpose, I think. Um, and so in the policy space, one of the things I am most guilty of is writing policy briefs based on a single research project and a single outcome. Um, and actually, whenever I've been funded to write a policy brief, my funders have told me, write a policy brief. And they've been very clear, write it about our project that we funded you to do and nothing else. Mm. Uh, and nowadays, what I'm doing is I'm pushing back on that. And I'm saying, OK, I'll write your policy brief. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a synthesis. I'm going to look across the board. And then in that context, yeah, I will highlight my finding. Um, but but we need to think, think a little bit more about the, the sin of omission, where actually we perhaps know that there are some other findings, potentially contradictory findings, and the fact that we don't represent that is actually something that when people find out about it that may cast us as being untrustworthy. But at the same time, I think there are, there are some kind of traps to fall into with this as well, because what I'm saying kind of implies, well, we just need to get our ducks in a row. And as a scientific community, we just need to all decide, well, what is the message and, and present consensus? And then that's how you make good evidence-based policy. But maybe not. Well, so we explore some of this in the paper, and we actually I outline a range of ways in which trust can manifest, be created, but also be lost in different situations. And so the one's what we call one big mistake, whereas you're building trust, you're building trust, and then you do something so misleading or so dishonest that you, you bottom out, you lose all that trust and you can never regain it. But on the flip side, there's other ones, and I forget what we call it, but you're building trust and then you do a little mistake, which might be, as you just said, you're forced to write a, a particular policy brief, and maybe it's just broken a little bit of trust with another stakeholder. But there's an opportunity to rebuild that trust back to an optimal level. And so we talk in the paper about the role of trust repair, and we outline some steps mm -hmm. for how to do that. So again, perhaps you've provided dishonest information, but it's completely by accident. So it's around acknowledging that as quickly as you can, um, outlining to the people involved why it happened and how you're going to mitigate against it, monitoring to make sure it doesn't happen again. And there's this whole literature that we drew on, on trust repair. Um, and we outline steps for if you do accidentally, inadvertently do something wrong, there's actually the opportunity. So trust isn't always lost. There's the opportunity to rebuild it and navigate that. I think for me that's really empowering because I think a lot of people don't even step into that policy arena because it is so full of risk. And what if I say something wrong? What if someone asks me that killer question and it's so simple and obvious and yet I don't know the answer and I take a guess and the guess turns out to be wrong. I mean, who knows? It is just so full of things that could potentially go wrong. And, and I think just realizing, knowing that actually most of the things that go wrong in this space, they're recoverable. You, you can rebuild that trust. This is not the end of everything. Uh, and I think it's really empowering just to go into this space knowing that, hey, I've got a plan. And if it doesn't work, I can, I can, I can come back from this. I, I can come back from the dead. And I think what you're saying really speaks to 
um, one of your core messages from over the last few days, which is the role of empathy. So if I'm meeting with a policymaker and we see each other first and foremost as human beings who deserve respect and openness and care, then it's much easier to understand why a mistake may have been made and to offer that forgiveness uh, and move on from it. And I think that's really critical when we have all of these hierarchical organisations and often they work against creating those sorts of human-to-human relationships. And so as much as we can, creating this feeling of we are a we (laughs) as opposed to an us and them can be so useful because it allows us to say we might be doing different things but we're working toward a shared goal, whatever that may, may be, an improved climate or more biodiversity or healthier, happier people. Yeah. So rather than you being the ANU Climate Institute or whatever, and this dissociated thing that has now brought your entire institute into disrepute because you put the wrong axis on a graph or something, actually you're you're Beck Colvin, you're a person, and actually we've all made mistakes. And in the bigger scheme of things, it's not that big a mistake, and it's easy to recover from. And I think when you've opened that channel of empathy and you're seen as a human being, then actually those mistakes are way more recoverable mm-hmm. than if you've put up this front of being the perfect scientist who never makes mistakes, and my word is law, and you have to do this. Yeah. Yeah, big difference. So... But one of the things that has fascinated me about the last couple of days in the workshop that that you've organised here, obviously a large organising committee, a lot of other people involved in this, but um, uh, you've really emphasised the the fact that this this is about a bunch of people who are interested in knowledge exchange and co-production from across primarily Australia, New Zealand, but some international guests like me as well. Um, but you've sought out knowledge exchange professionals from government uh, and from Aboriginal communities uh, and elsewhere and brought us all together as equals in this, uh, that we're all professionals with different expertise about how to bring people together, how to find out these rich and different knowledges and bring them together to affect change. And I think what what has been really refreshing for me is the level of critical thinking that that has forced me to do about the privilege that I have as a white male Western professor uh, with a whole lot of assumptions uh, about where my knowledge comes from and and what should be done with it Uh, and a whole lot of languages behind that uh, and all this kind of stuff. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about why that was so important for you and um, and and how we can actually think about knowledge exchange and collaborate with other professionals in other sectors beyond the academy and why that is such a good thing to do. Well, I think um, I should first and foremost acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Rachel Morgan, who's the knowledge broker for their Threatened Species Recovery Hub with the National Environmental Science Programme. God, we've all got such long titles and affiliations, but um, Rachel's really shaped my thinking and has been really influential on me and has helped, she's helped me to have that reflection and critique and kind of um, thinking about my own positions of privilege, the many positions of privilege that I too occupy in society. And so when we organised the workshop, we really wanted it to be something that could bring together academics and practitioners. So identifying that we can learn a lot from 
experiential knowledge of um, practitioners and that academics have heaped to offer as well in terms of that time that we get for writing and reflection and these spaces that we have for really deep interrogation of each other and the ideas that are being put forward. Um, but it was really Rachel who said, if we're talking about knowledge exchange in Australia, we need to have our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues here because we're on Aboriginal land no matter where we are in this country. Sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs> uh, and by saying that we can talk about an exchange of knowledge and not including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives excludes the knowledge that's been accumulated and maintained over tens of thousands of years by one of the world's longest civilizations uh, with such rich cultures of oral no knowledge sharing um, and different ways of knowing and understanding the world. And so I found it incredibly valuable and intellectually stimulating and personally emotionally stimulating to think about uh, who am I as someone who's been brought up, um, taught not to question the way that we establish Western scientific knowledge, um, brought up as a white Australian who's benefited from the privileges that people who look different from me or sound different from me don't enjoy. And it, it's made me really want to have an approach to my work that achieves positive outcomes as I'm required to by my job description and all of those sorts of things, but also helps to support more diversity of voices into these places of decision-making and thinking about what knowledge is valid and how can we construct these sorts of discussions. Yeah. Kind of rambled off to a point now, and I'm not qu quite sure what you actually asked me to no, talk about. But. but but I think respect for these different knowledges is 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 hugely important. What what is for me really interesting here though is that this is not in this kind of extractive or perhaps colonial idea that there are these indigenous people and we need to go and study them and collect their knowledge and then we are the conduits for that knowledge then back to policy or whoever else might need to, to hear that. But actually the, the idea that within that community, within the business community, within the policy community, there are knowledge exchange professionals, knowledge exchange specialists like us who uh, whether this is through academic endeavour, very often some of the, the policy experts in the room had academic backgrounds, or whether this is through the experiential practice of doing this and generations worth of tradition and understanding of how knowledge is created and shared through oral traditions. There are actual knowledge exchange professionals out there that we can engage with that can deepen our understanding of knowledge exchange processes and, and how it is that we can then affect change and, uh, and, and impact. And so this is, this is about learning professional to professional across sectors and across cultures. And, and that for me was, was a really fresh and really new experience that, that I've, I've hugely valued. And, and uh, I just wonder, can we do this this more? I mean, here we are in Australia, and uh, in the kind of research tradition that you're in, there's a real awareness of of the need to respect um, uh, these traditions and to be humble enough to be aware of your own position of of privilege and uh, and be more self-critical. 
Um, but I think that in other countries, we don't, we're not forced to look at those things. And, and so for, for me, despite actually having a colonial background, my, my, my grandparents, great-grandparents were all missionaries. I'm not that self-critical, uh, actually, really, I discovered, <laughs> um, uh, about that background and that privilege and the assumptions that, 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 that I have. And, uh, and yeah, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess we, we're fortunate to have these spaces and this is again one of our privileges to have this space where we can come together and have these challenging discussions that allow us to turn the mirror back on ourselves and think about ourselves in different ways. But what you were saying about different types of knowledge, I think about Chris's work working with people in Western Australia and with um, fisher folk and looking at lots of different types of experiential knowledge and saying how can we think about this interface between knowledge that comes from the scientific method and from the academic institutions and use that in a cooperative way with knowledge that comes from other places. I think there's a huge amount of um, expertise with people who can do great things. Chris, maybe you could reflect. I keep trying to take over from you as host. But, but no, <laughs> well, I'm going I'm to bring Chris in um, <laughs> because um, I've got one final question um, and, uh, and I think... I have a sense of, of some of the stuff that you might say and, and answer this question, which I think links to this. And um, uh, and so for both of you, it's the same question, and, and fairly briefly, because we haven't got much time left. Um, what what for you would be the the one lesson from your research and or experience that you would give to to listeners that that has made the biggest difference to your practice? And what I love about what both of you guys do is that you research this and you're in that literature uh, and you're also practitioners. You do this on a day-to-day basis. So uh, this is not just in theory, but actually stuff that from your own research or from your reading or from your experience, you've discovered actually really works. Yep, so everyone's looking at me, so I'll go first. <laughs> um, so I guess for me, yeah, I, I study knowledge exchange processes to work out how to do it better, but the most important thing I've learned hasn't come from any of my studies necessarily. Um, last year, I was really lucky. A colleague, Megan Evans, who was at University of Queensland, um, invited me to give a talk at a workshop around my experiences working in this space. Um, and after that, there were a lot of early career researchers in the crowd, and after that we got a lot of feedback saying from people saying, we hear we've never heard this stuff, no one's ever taught us this stuff, we need some tangible stuff. And Megan and I were really lucky, so we walked away from that thinking, well, let's write a paper based on our tangible experiences as early career researchers trying to engage with policy. And what was nice about that, it gave Megan and I a chance to talk a lot and to reflect on what we've learned along the way. And I guess for me, the biggest thing that I learned reflecting on my career so far and from on my experiences is it's actually nothing I've ever learned through my studies or through the formal channels. It's a soft skills. And in particular, I'm going to cough. Um, in particular, for it. can I? Yeah. <coughs> we have some water oh, as well. It's all good. I've been holding that in for ages. Um, <laughs> in particular, it's things around the way you act as an individual. So back to what we're talking about, trust, acting with humility, being open to new ideas and respectful of new ideas. But the single most important thing I guess I've learned is around the need for personal resilience. I think operating in this space is tough. And you need something that keeps you going each day. And you need to respect that or understand that you will fail, but that's an opportunity to learn. There's a big case of optimism. And in particular, the way I deal with that is by surrounding myself or trying to surround myself with really good people that share my values and that drive me um, and to work with people that really want to achieve what I want to achieve. And I guess that's what's kept me going in this space throughout my career. Yeah, fantastic. And you've got a, a paper coming out um, 
in uh, <coughs> Nature Journal. I can't remember which one. Um, on on optimism in conservation. Is that right? Um, optimism at the science policy okay. interface and how that could a more optimistic outlook might help empower more individuals to try and engage. So it'll be Nature Communications hopefully within a few weeks. It's yeah. in press. Yeah, fantastic. So. Resilience and, and and actually the power of optimism to make you resilient and and man do you need optimism sometimes the the number of plan A's and B's and C's and obstacles that get in your way that that you need to just get keep going and and you get some fairly harsh knockbacks sometimes. Uh, this is academic life, full stop. But when you're engaging in contested issues with challenging people and situations, yeah, yeah, this is needed. Beck, what, what would you say to the, in answer to this? I would say that I've learned a lot from studying social psychology. This is not something I have formal training in, but my PhD was largely around the lessons that we can take from social psychology to understand conflicts between people about environmental issues, blah, 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 blah. But what to me is so striking about what we can learn from social psychology is the fact that there's this long disciplinary tradition of uh, theory development, empirical verification, and um, in particular, some scholars, Australian scholars, in fact, who take those theories and make them very applicable to real world issues. And so kind of in a nutshell, what this tells us is that if I'm in one group and I identify with this group, it's my in-group, and if you're in a different group and I don't identify with your group, you're an out-group. And as soon as we've got that in-group, out-group dynamic, it puts up all sorts of barriers between us. So you see people favouring members of their in-group and you see them being suspicious and hostile toward people in out-groups. One of the biggest issues, though, is that you stereotype people in an out-group. So you say, all those redheads are all just... <laughs> so disclaimer, both Chris and I are redheads. But they're, they're all just silly or whatever it happens to be. You apply these stereotypes and it ends up dehumanising people. And once you dehumanise them, it's so much easier to justify doing harm. And that harm can be through supporting a new policy that limits their rights to something like being able to go fishing where they want to go or it could be much more visceral, like physically doing harm against people. But I don't think you have to look too far to see the impacts of saying they're not us, they're them and we don't like them and we'll do bad things toward them. And so it's that type of thinking that really informs the way that I try to engage with people and even the, the language that I try to use around people. I think we can... We can really do a lot to centre every person as a human being who has value. They're not the groups to which they belong or the categorizations that we apply to them. They're a human being. And once we all see ourselves in those terms, I think we start from a point of mutual, I mean, I'm kind of repeating what I said before, but start from a point of mutual respect and care, empathy, and we can take it from there. And then we can recognise the strength and the benefits that we get from our diversity that come from those important groups that we identify with, but not use them as a barrier, use that as a benefit and a strength to our shared humanity. <laughs> well, both of you, amazing, amazing points. I, I am inspired by both of those final comments. And everything we've spoken about, um, it's, it's a real privilege to get that insight into how both of you guys think and do in this space. So thank you very much, Beck and Chris, for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Yay. It's a pleasure.